C'è la luna mezza mare, mamma mia, mamma redare. Welcome, everybody, and another episode of Hollywood Godfather, fortunately, with my co-writer and my friend, Pat Picciarelli. Hi, everybody. And our millennium, the gorgeous. <laughs> the gorgeous. Millennial, yes. Millennial. That is, right, millennial. Oh, thank you. Millennial, yeah, you got it. Millennial, okay. I'm going to learn all of this soon, please. <laughs> Megan Horan. How's the last name? Horan is good? Horan. Horan, Horan, Horan. Okay. There we Horan. go. Oh, you, you can pronounce 14 syllable Italian names in your sleep. I know, but I, Irish names are tough with me. It's yeah, that Irish name. It's tough Horan, for, the, for the Italians. Yes, okay. you got it. Hi, guys. How are we doing? Great. Doing well. Fortunately. Yeah, Johnny, uh, I got uh, called from a, oh, I got uh, emailed from a fan. Uh, with a, an interesting premise, he said to me, you know, I, I've been listening to the show from the inception, and he said, uh, you guys, meaning you and I, were out of the country at about the same time with the same length of time. You, because you, you had to leave, and me, because like an idiot, I volunteered to leave and went to Vietnam and Korea. Uh, but those two years left a huge social gap in my life. Uh, when I came back, it was like I was entering another universe. And uh, from the stories you've told, it was something similar, correct? Oh, yeah, because, you know, um, I know what you're talking about, because the fact that when I did leave, and I, was, I left because of the Kennedy assassination, for the people who didn't read our book, you could read it and find out what that's all about. And it just tease you with that. But um, when I left, like you, you know, I met a guy early on in my life at Ferrara's coffee shop called Carlo Gambino. And we used to call him Uncle Carlo. And I only knew that, like, when, when I could start to speak until I went to the, you know, the quarantine at, the, at uh, Bellevue in 1949. And then after that, our friendship. And then I started traveling as most people know, for 57, 58, 59, for that whole election. And then the assassination, then like you pointed, that's when we left. But when I left, the mob was totally different, especially the guy that I knew really well, Anello, because, you know, Della Croce, he was like, uh, we used to call him O'Neill, by his request. And um, like so many of the Italians, they were going with Irish names like Frank Costello. But um, it, it's it, that's an interesting question that the guy would do that. I mean, it, it's... well, well, well. Apparently, is a very, uh, very astute person who was paying attention. But, but anyway, like you said, uh, I had a different experience. I didn't. I lived in Little Italy, right? I didn't know the mob existed, right? I was. Uh, well, you left in 63. I left in 65, but uh, I was 14 years old when my father died in 1960. So uh, prior to that, he owned an Italian restaurant on uh, Bay and Elizabeth Street, and I was immersed in, in that world of all his friends. I mean, I, I used to go there every day, and uh, I, I never knew anybody's real name, and, and I thought that this was normal. For example, my godfather, he was known to me and everybody else 
as Patty the priest. I was like 30 before I found out he was never really a priest. <laughs> but when, his, was he really your godfather? Yeah, he was. That's... And and his brother was his older brother was known as Nick the Pope. And I was I thought maybe he knew the Pope or was the Pope. What did I know? Was a <laughs> and there was guys. There was another guy named Louis the Jew, because he was the only Jewish guy in in, in the circle of friends. There was uh, Phil the Thief. I'll never forget this guy. He stole anything that wasn't nailed down. But I, I, I never knew their real names. In fact, I thought their middle names were the. <laughs> I mean, you know, these were really nice guys, and they would, they would come into the bar. And I was a kid, eight, nine, ten years old, and uh, my father was teaching me how to cook. Because he was, he owned the place, but he was the cook too, and he was the bartender too. Unless I got real busy, then he would throw somebody else behind the stick. But these guys treated me very well. They were really, really nice guys, and they all looked the part. They all wore like Spencer Tracy, for, you know, fedoras with, with, the, with the floppy brims. Oh, I like it. I can picture them in, in, in the same type of overcoats. I guess they didn't wear them in the summer, but I, I don't really recall it was so long ago. And they would always have something for me, or they'd be telling me stories about, uh, about the neighborhood. I didn't know what any of them did for a living. I never bothered to ask. I was a kid. What, what did I care about that? I just wanted to have fun. And uh, then I, my father died when I was 14, and uh, the bar was sold. And the Italian portion of, of my life was uh, was in the past, because I'm, I'm half a Russian, and I just found out I'm Greek and a whole lot of other things. But we never knew anything about, uh, I never knew anything about the Italian part of my life. You did, though, obviously. Oh, yeah. I, well, I was basically forced it because of my, you know, we, we were born and raised down there, and that's all I knew. And like like you, you know, I knew everybody by their nicknames also, and never knew. After a while, I didn't think anybody worked. I wanted to be them. They all drove great cars, wore great suits, and seemed like they never had a job, which they didn't. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's yeah, that's something else too. These guys never worked; they were always around. I know. But didn't anything of it. And then I met my uh, my father's cousin, Sonny. They they called, and I didn't know his real name either. To this day, I don't know their real names. This was my my father's cousin. It wasn't his first cousin. It was a couple times removed, but he was always in the bar, and they called him Sonny because he always wore sunglasses. Oh, that's their nicknames always got me. It had to do something with their way of life, not their names, yeah. like you said. And they, I know, and they, the and they didn't want to carry it. They didn't want to have na names but on the street. a priest and Nick the Pope, as far as I know, never saw the inside of a church. They were both single guys. They lived in Dickabaka uh, Village, if you recall where that was. Yeah, I know where that is, yeah. Uh, not together. They had their, 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 their separate apartments. But Sonny did... Uh, uh, 20 years in Sing Sing was sticking up a pizzeria. Who does 20 years for that? Murderers. Yeah. I know, but that, I was just going to say, why? Why did he do he 20 was getting himself in so much freaking trouble that he was always getting tossed in solitary and his eyes went on him. He couldn't stand the light after a while. Oh, wow. Got out, he wore sunglasses 24-7. My father's bar, you needed a seeing eye dog to make your way through that place. Oh, yeah, they always kept them dim. Very dimly lit place. And I always said, where the hell are the lights? I was like eight years old. I wanted light, you know? Right, right. And tell me, no kid, this is atmosphere. Everybody wants this. You know, trust me. You know? 
Well, I mean, at that, even with myself now, you know, because having the same upbringing and always being in the clubs and dimly lit, and they never wanted lights on. I live like that most of the time. People come to my house and say, how come it's so dim in here? I said, I like it that way. Yeah, yeah. I was raised that way. But I really was, I like it that way, really. I like, well, well uh, Megan's so been here, you know, Megan's been here with our family, and it's uh, softly lit, isn't it, Megan? Yes, and I definitely like that. I like ambiance. Yeah, I don't like bright lights at all. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't find much of that around here because uh, all the restaurants are lit up like Coney Island used to be. Yeah. Really? I mean, even if it's a high-end restaurant uh, in Pittsburgh, they're, they're all brightly lit for some reason. I wonder why that's interesting. I don't, they didn't get the memo. I don't know. But, uh, so anyway, I, I wind up uh, being an aimless guy. I, I just managed to graduate high school. It took me three high schools to get out. I was failing everything. At least you but, went and got out. <laughs> well, I was dyslexic. Uh, no one was aware of it. They didn't even know what dyslexia was. And I, I, I've mentioned this in the past. But anyway, I didn't have anything to do, so I volunteered for the Army. I didn't wait to get drafted. I joined, and I volunteered for Vietnam because insanity must run in my family. I mean, it was totally uh, Yeah, the volunteer for anything. I learned that I was in the infantry. I volunteered for that, too. I, I wanted to go out there and prove myself, I guess. I don't know. But before they sent me there, they sent me to Korea. But they said it was only going to be for a short time because the unit I was supposed to be with would be leaving from Korea and going to Vietnam. I would be going with them. When I arrived in Korea, lo and behold, they had already left. So I wound up staying in Korea for a year, freezing my ass off. Oh, and wow. I, I volunteered for Vietnam. And uh, uh, much to my dismay, they sent me. When, once I was there, I, I found out I think I did the wrong thing. You know? But anyway, I survived. And when I came back, I was in the police department probably six months after I got back. I scored very, very well on the test. And uh, then I started to find out what organized crime was. I mean, the only organized crime I was exposed to in the 50s was the Untouchables. You remember that show? Oh, yeah. Elliot Ness. Yeah, Robert Stack was. I love that whole... show, actually. Yeah. What was but... that? What was that show about? About the organized crime, about the, the mafia. Uh... He would say, he the mob. Out. Well, it wasn't really the mafia then. This was a, this was in the twenties. Nobody was organized. Well, he was the FBI guy, wasn't he? Elliot Ness. Uh, Elliot yeah. Ness was in the FBI, but it was all about the prohibition during the twenties. Okay. The Italians, there was Irish, there were Jews. In Chicago, they were fighting over territory. The Italians, yeah. the, the Irish. Yeah, I remember the show vaguely because it was all about, like you said, Chicago and Capone and all the territory. About and Ali yeah. Ness was like a real hero in real life, I heard. He was a Ooh. real guy. Ali Ness, yeah. Yeah, he, he was a real guy. My father, uh, as you know, the restaurant business is all uh, consuming. You, you, own, you own a restaurant, as you know, or a club. You have to be there. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, mm -hmm. otherwise somebody else is going to wind up owning it, which is yeah, your employee. about a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, they're going to rob you blind. So my father was always in the restaurant. And we, we very rarely uh, went out together, his, his father and son. He, he would take a day off every now and then, take him to the, the beach. He loved Rockaway. He was a great drummer, so we would go there. But I can count the number of times on the fingers of one hand. He took me to the movie once in his life, and uh, which was to see Al Capone with Rod Steiger. Oh, I love that. I'll never forget this. I said, wow, I'm going to the movies with my dad. And we got along very well. I mean, I, I love my father. He was, he was a great father when he was around. Uh, so he takes me there, and, and I just asked, I didn't know who Al Capone was. This was 19, 
58. I think I was about 12. I think that's that's when it came out. And I said, uh, I asked him, I said, well, why are we going to see this movie? And I'll never forget it. It was in the Victoria Theater on Broadway and 45th Street, right across from Layton's, the clothing store. Yeah, I know well. So I used to anyway, shop there <laughs> before I, before we went I, to Brioni. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love that store too. But anyway, Al Capone, he told me, was a friend of his that grew up together in Brooklyn. So I said, oh, that's nice. I mean, I don't know Al Capone was. <laughs> And my, my, my jaw dropped. I said, you knew this guy? He said, we were best friends. He said, I was supposed to go to Chicago with him. But he was sort of forced to go. You know, uh, Capone had to leave town. Well, I knew that, yeah. So my father said I didn't want to go, and I stayed. And, you know, the rest is history. Al Capone became Al Capone, and, and my father became a businessman. Right. But well, I didn't make the connection in, until I got back and, and, and joined the police department. And then I started working organized crime, and I started working a guy named the hell was his name? Gianni Russo. <laughs> Sharp dress. Looks something like you. Yeah, Same name. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Amazing. You know, it's funny. Where, where you are right now in your life, just before you went to Vietnam, I had the same experiences because, as you know, during that time, the Anastasias ran mostly everything, and Albert Anastasia and some Jewish friends like Louis Lepke and them, they created Murder Incorporated. So now I'm just a messenger, fortunately, for the rest of my life because of Frank Costello. How old were you at that time, Johnny? Um, I was in my teen, early teens. I just started working with Frank Costello. This was the 50s. You know what I'm saying? So it was uh, the similarities because of the fact that I heard of the problems with Vito Genovese and not, not knowing, and I wasn't privy to really what was going on. And then, you know, during the 50s, I was asked to go on the road in 57, 58, and help a guy called Senator Robert Kennedy become president. I don't know. I, I, was, just, I was just going everywhere, bringing envelopes and carrying messages, and everybody just knew me as the kid, which I like that nickname. In fact, that name was basically eradicated after The Godfather came out in 1972. Most oh. people said, I didn't know you were an actor. I said, well, I'm not. That was my first movie. But it's funny because you and I were about a block away from Mulberry Street. Yeah, um, I, lived, I, I lived at the 13 Elizabeth. I know. I know right where you I knew. I knew that address well. I mean, all that area. But right here, next to the 5th Precinct. Yeah, and here we are, uh, light years, years apart, apart <laughs> and everything yeah. else. <laughs> well, we're very close to the same age, you know. But oh, I know. Uh, one thing about that that area is, uh, you can if you lived on Elizabeth Street like I did, that was my world. Yeah, I mean, block and the corner where my father had his restaurant, right on the corner. If I was to go a block. East, like towards City Hall, that was where uh, the uh, Limehouse was. I used to go there to dinner with my dad, with right. Chinese run across the street. Right. But that was my right there. Those two square blocks. Oh yeah, once you cross Canal Street, you're in a different world. <laughs> I wouldn't dare do that. I know. Oh, rules to, to cross Canal Street. Well, you see, stay... my, my situation was a, a, a lot different at that age because, to me, in 1949, I went to to Bellevue. For, you know, for five years with polio. So I came out 
with knowing Carlo Gambino because he sent me a transistor radio, and then I was selling ballpoint pens in front of the Sherry Netherlands Hotel in the mid fifties, and that led me to meet Frank Costello. Did you? Let me ask you a question. There's something I never asked you. Did you feel at that time? I mean, when you're young, like yeah. I was, and you you really can't formulate. You you can't think five years in the future when you're that age. It's just, it's just impossible. Oh no. But did you? After you knew who these guys were, of course, it didn't take you very long. You're a sharp guy. Did you feel that you wanted to stay in that life? No. You know, you know, the only reason I felt good in that life because one was Carlo Gambino. And the other was Frank Costello. And after me spending the time in, being quarantined without any male figure, and even my male figure that I did have was my father, who you know, used to beat up my mother who was never home anyway. So I really didn't know the guy when I left to go to the hospital. So these guys you know, treated me. Carlo Gambino, it's funny you should ask that question. Carlo Gambino to me was like my real grandfather. <laughs> and Frank Costello was the father I wish I had because he dressed well, he's a calm guy, didn't raise his voice, never to know later on as I do did know that the power he had worldwide, which I'd find out soon enough. But it's it's interesting, and I'm glad this this gentleman, whoever it was, asked this question because here we are, you and I, friends now for four or five years while we wrote the book, and here we are. This is the first time we really get to know who we were prior to writing the book. <laughs> yeah, you know, and uh, something else that I didn't think was odd, but uh, my father wanted to get us out. You know, we, we were we were growing up, uh, and he wanted to get us out of that area. I think in the back of his mind, he he didn't want me getting uh, getting in any kind of trouble. Of course, it was oh really yeah, that easy. was the whole thing. Getting very easy to do. Yeah. So we bought a house in Jackson Heights, Queens. And I oh, you uh, were gone then, but Jesus, you were never back <laughs> until you got yeah, on well, the beach. I, I still used to go back every weekend because I had a lot of friends down there. Yeah, my friends used to ask me the, the uh, new friends, the ones I made in Queens, how come you're always dressed up? They used to ask me, <laughs> you know, I would dress up. I just, you know, I mean, I was, I was like an early teenager at the time, but I. Uh, it, it, I just got it by osmosis that you learn how to dress well when yep. you come from an area, and you're. Uh, this is the way the men dressed. Yep. You know, they all look good. Nobody looked too casual. Even when they were casual, silk shirts, highly polished shoes. I mean, they always look good. Well, I said, I'm looking around. I said, I'm not. I'll never forget what I said. I'm not dressed up. I'm dressed well. Yeah. And mm. this is coming from a 13 year old. You know. Love that. I, this is the way I was brought up. I mean, I can get down and dirty with anybody else, but I like leaving the house. I, my attitude was, if you look good, you feel good. Well, I still feel that way. You know, it's, it's ironic because here we are. I'm being, I can't believe I'm about to say what I'm saying. I'll be 79 this year, but I, I get dressed to go for a walk. People say, you're going for a walk. Why are you getting dressed? I said, well, I just like getting dressed, and I do. And I'm glad I do because, you know. I I, I do the exact same thing. You know, even during COVID, when we were locked down for a year plus, I would get up every day like it was a normal day. I wouldn't lounge around in my jammies and don't shave for two weeks. I would get up, get dressed well, 
And it's, it, you know, it's good psychologically if you're locked up in your house for a year. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You look like a slob. You're going to act like one. Yeah. No, but, uh... Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I learned that by looking. No one told me. Well, there, the, I mean, we had the greatest mentors because those guys were gentlemen. They, they did dress. Yeah. And they, they taught me how to dress early on in life. I'm, I'm still grateful for that. And then from, you know, the Costellos and those people, I went to Johnny Agnelli, who's like probably the best dresser in the world and known for it. But uh, no, I mean, I, I even with what I went through, and then like you said, we both left the country, which was another awakening for me to understand really who I was around, especially spending the time I was in Sicily in the early 60s. And one of my closest friends just passed at 97, Mr. Bufa, who I didn't know this guy, he was like the world boss. <laughs> yeah, he was in Sicily, no? Yeah. And Let me yeah. ask you this, while, while we're on uh, older influences, and I'll, t- I'll tell you what my experiences was, but I have to ask you first, did any of these people ever have a harsh word for you? No. Me either? Nope. Not a harsh, and these guys were tough guys. Not a harsh word. They were always respectful. I was a kid. You know, they could have told me, get the hell out of here. They're talking. Never. No. You know, if they go over and, and sit down with them, they'd make room. No, once they like you and you, they, they, they re, I mean, that's the one thing. Talking about respect, and I just had a blowout with one of my kids that I won't mention his name because you all know him. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't just take people into my house, whether you're my son or whatever. When you come into my house, you got to respect me. Don't be on your cell talking to me. No, wait, hold up your hand. Holds up his hand. Wait, 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 wait. I'm talking to somebody. Oh, okay. Well, go in the hall and get out of here. <laughs> and I lock the door. See you later. What the hell? What are you nuts? <laughs> well, that, that that just occurred to me. But while you were talking, you talked about this old guy in Sicily. Not not once ever did anybody have a harsh word to say to me. And I was a kid. I, I would I would screw up. I, I I'd have a wise mouth occasionally. I mean. But the other, they they would either you know uh, laugh or or uh, tell me to sit down and talk to me. They were just such nice people. I don't know what became of them. Like I say, my own godfather. I never knew his last name. That's well. My godfather. That is interesting that you would say that. Now, what did you experience, Megan, in your life compared to what you're hearing from us? You had about hours. <laughs> A very normal. I don't, life. I don't think there's a whole lot to compare, and you know it's funny. Well, I mean, there's a contrast. They, you got up and went to school, and that is true. I, I met did you in the church in... with your whole family, so I mean, these, these are important things. Our <laughs> listeners love you too. There's three of us here. <laughs> well, it is funny the the years that you bring up, uh, sixty three and sixty five. There were the years that my parents were born. <laughs> are you kidding? I forget. Wow. <laughs> Wow. My dad was born in 63. My mom was born in 65. So uh, oh, yeah. definitely a di- different era from anything yeah. I've even probably heard stories about. I forget, you know, I have a great friendship with your mother and father. I, t- I speak to your father a lot. And I, I forget how young he is. He could be one of my sons, actually. He is young. What was that, Pat? What date in 65? Uh, my, my mom was born August 5th. 1960. No, August 4th. My grandmom says the 5th. August 4th, 1965. August August 65, I was in Korea. That's amazing. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. Awesome. 
I was in Korea getting shot at, at uh, on the BMZ. Jesus. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's it's so crazy. Here we are, the three of us. It's it's when you start to hear these kind of stories. It's it's shot. I mean, to me, I love the fact that I'm still going and experiencing this and have this show with the three of, but the I mean, the three of us. But you know, when you reflect on these kind of parts of history, and I mean, that, this really what Pat and I are talking about is not. It's it's a big part of American history, but it was the backdrop of organized crime throughout the world, which I realized later on. This wasn't just a neighborhood club. I found that out later on. When, you know, they said in the movie, uh, we'll be bigger than U.S. Steel. Maya wasn't kidding. We were. (laughs) They were. But, you know, when when you're young, you're very wrapped up in yourself. That's why uh, young people, even up, up through their early 20s, make the worst witnesses. But they don't see anything. They're just wrapped up in themselves, and that's okay. That's the, that's the way the society works. But when I was a kid, of course, it was the same way, and I didn't realize until I got out of the army and went back to the old neighborhood. Then I started to notice things. How when certain people walk down the street, it parts like the Red Sea, you know. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, and the 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 way people get talked to versus the way other people get talked to, and uh, like my father and I used to go into uh, restaurants. Luna, you remember Luna? Oh, Luna, I love Luna. Okay, well, I used to live up on top of Luna, one two one Mulberry Street. How low is that? Another yeah, place. I was. I used to go. I used to go to the old place before they yeah, moved. Yeah, that's the old one. Yep. Uh, I used to go in there with my uh, 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 godfather, Patty, Patty the priest. Uh-huh. No tables, and there was a line outside. We just used to walk right in to be a table there, and I never thought anything of it. I do now. <laughs> oh, yeah, know? they always kept the table, one or two tables, in case somebody walked in like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no, that's, I mean, that that's the one thing, I mean, one of many things I should say that I truly miss, and fortunately, you know, I, I still have respect with certain people, and um, I like it. I mean, for the the times I spent traveling and doing what I've done and, I've lost families over it. I have no regrets. I mean, I may sound very selfish, but I've seen some people who, you know, were happily married for 30 years and their wife left them. So I don't know who's better off. <laughs> you know, every now and then I uh, revert back to my inner Italian. Uh, when, I don't know if I ever told you the story, but when uh, uh, Trump won the election, which he wasn't expected to win, I was teaching in the, the college that I teach in, the university that I teach in. Are you kidding? I went to school the next day, and one of the students, I had about 50 students, and they were all like late teens, I would say, maybe early 20s, but they were seniors. And uh, one one girl raises her hand and she said, uh, I was wondering if we can postpone the midterm exam, so which was scheduled to be given, I think, the next day. So I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, uh, Donald Trump got elected and we're all depressed. Oh my God. Oh my God. I said, I never told you this? No. Okay, so I said, well, anyway, I teach from behind a lectern. So I come out from behind a lectern and there's a desk there. And I sat on the desk and I said, What's your name? I mean, I had like 100 students in there. I didn't know anybody. So she tells me your name. And I said, How old are you? Well, she says, Oh, I'm, I'm 18. And I sat and I. I don't get excited. I don't raise my voice. I'm always calm, but I was seething, you know, and I, 
I said, uh, well, you're 18. Let me see. What was I doing when I was 18? I said, <sighs> yeah, I was in the middle of a jungle with an M60 machine gun. And I said, you know, I wanted to do over too. And oh, they man. to me, any questions? And you could hear the proverbial pin drop. But I was, I had a smile on my face. I mean, I wasn't being mean. Right, right. Trying to put their lives in perspective. If you are so upset that you have to make a request like that, you were either weren't brought up right or you haven't had enough experiences in life, even at 18, to realize that sometimes life isn't fair. Things don't go your way. Uh, and that was the end of that experience. And I was, you know. I'm surprised you, uh, parents didn't come and talk to you about that. <laughs> You know they're not allowed to. Oh wow! It's it's uh, it's a uh, university law, at least in Pennsylvania. Parents cannot come to the professors, ask them how their children are doing, what grades they got. They can't do that. Oh, I thought maybe you're just reprimanding in front of the class. And... Well, well, I didn't reprimand them. I just asked a simple question: How old are you? And then I I reverted back to my youth when I was her age, and okay. they had, they took it for what it was worth. You know, in other words, don't let the small things upset you because if they're doing that now, when something really bad happens, you're not going to be able to handle it. Oh, yeah, well, most kids can, unfortunately. And needless to say, they had their midterm the next day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you know, when, I, when you were talking about your godfather, my godfather was Tony Anastasia, Albert Anastasia's brother. And as uh, some of the audience who knows it don't know, uh, I, I heard of Albert Anastasia when he got machine gunned to death in the Park Sheridan Hotel. <laughs> I mean, th this is what was going on through that whole transition, unbeknownst to you and even I knew what was going on in the neighborhood. And when we came back, it was totally different because who was running, like even the Pofacci family was abolished. And it's ironic because every name I can mention, I had something to do with. The Pavacci family, along with Joe Bonanno, was trying to assassinate the Gambinos. And a soldier in the Pavacci family called Joe Colombo, who happened to give me a part in The Godfather, <laughs> went to the Gambinos. And that's when they took care of John Pavac uh, Joe Pavacci and Bonanno was exiled to go to Sicily or go to Arizona desert for the rest of his life. But I mean, uh, when when Anastasia got killed in the Park Sheridan, that was October 1957. I remember the day it happened. Yeah. Because my father came home, and he was upset. So I I never met Anastasia. I didn't know the name. I, I knew nothing. But he was upset, and he was talking about his friend that just died. Uh, what was your reaction? Did you know who Anastasia was, other than your godfather's brother? No, I knew of him, and I met him several times. But did you know who he was, what he did for a living, which no. was killing others? No, but which is ironic because spin, spin back, uh, later on, 30, 40 years later, in a movie called Lepke, I got to know him well. I played him in Lepke. I mean, when we start talking about these parallels, I mean, it, it's, just, it's crazy because of the fact that, like Joe Colombo was instrumental in me getting called, I mean, getting me Carlo in The Godfather. Anastasia, I wound up playing with Tony Curtis, who played Louis Lepke, and you know all about that with the Dewey administration, and Walter Winchell interceded yeah. and was the middleman on that. 
and he promised him, you know, he wouldn't, and they gave him the electric chair. I mean, this is a lot for young kids to digest, and thank God Megan didn't have to go through this. But, well, you know, I don't know. Like, it's, uh, <laughs> you have to look at it in, in perspective. While you're going through it, it may be uncomfortable, but after living seven decades, or eight decades almost for the both of us, right. you'll look back on this, would you have changed any of it? Not a, not a day. Not an hour well, of my life. I'm, 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 talking about, I'm talking about in your youth, be, before your success in business and the movies and all that. Would you have changed growing up? No. The way you, no. But you had a hard time. I, I get that. I get that all the time. Fortunately, I'm still being asked to be interviewed. I wouldn't change as I reflect on my life. Even once I met Costello, I felt, I, I felt comfortable meeting him every morning. Here's a guy that I don't know, but he demands respect just by walking into a room, like you said. You know, you could see how people almost genuflect when they see him out of respect. And would I want to be that guy after laying in a hospital for five years straight? Yeah. And he gave, every time I saw the guy, he gave me a $100 bill. I could see him four or five times a day. And I said, no, you already did. I said, don't tell me what to do. So you feel that going through what you did made you a better person? Oh, yeah. Definitely. It made so me a better what? person. And probably 80% of the world who are listening to this don't like what I am now anyway, because, you know, but uh, well, this, you have to be for me. You only have to be, you know, you only have to be concerned with what your family thinks of you and the hell with everybody else. That's my attitude. Well, I can't, even, I can't even say that honestly, because I don't care what my family thinks of me, because my family has a lot of doubt about me and how I got to where I am, but they didn't have to go through it. It's very easy for people to judge people like myself and know or overhear things that they think I did, and they're very judgmental. But I don't know, if you were in that same position, what would you have done? My, I, my point for me is, and I, I learned this a long time ago, I was in some serious therapy when I got out of the military, and there was an old German shrink, I could barely understand her sometimes, recommended by my, by my sister. Anyway, she said to me, if you Forget everything that we've gone through here. Never forget this one thing I'm about to tell you. Never, ever care what other people think about you because you'll be leading their lives and not yours. Of course. And I never forgot that, and I don't care. And I, I'm, that's why I'm saying, when, when you mentioned uh, only worry about what your family, I can't even say that. I really, I mean, I sit here right now. I, I don't care about what anybody thinks. I do what I think I do for me. I apologize to the people that I offend or hurt, but I don't know any better. This is all they know. It's, it's, not, it's not that you don't know any better. That's the right way to conduct your life. Otherwise, if you're, if you're concerned about what other people think of you, you will never be a success in life, because you're always afraid of criticism. Yeah, not was never. Uh, you, you, you've made a success out of your life. I like to think I have, uh, but if I were to listen to, what, you're, 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 you're 50 years old and you're gonna write a book? You're out of your mind. Because that's when I, when I wrote my first book. I was 50. Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I 100% I agree with you. And we learn that from our youth. We just absorb it. Right. Well, you know, and again, talking about, well, right now, you know, I have grandchildren. I have children. I feel sorry for them because they don't have the culture to draw from the way we did. Like we talk about people with respect. We talk about people who know how to dress people with manners 
most of my kids don't have manners. It's I them, it's them first and whatever, you know. I think you have to fail a lot in life to, to be to be able to respect yourself. You can't you can't have everything handed to you. You can't be be born with the proverbial silver spoon in your mouth. The more you fail, the better person it makes you. You can't fail at everything, of course, but you're gonna fail a lot before you ever become a success for the first time, and you may lose that and have to work at it again. Well, yeah, I, I think I think when you fail at something, you just learn from that and move on and do something else. It don't, don't let it crush you. But do you think a lot of people now can have that attitude? No. A lot of people now, I, I, I failed, okay, I'm gonna dust myself off, and I'm gonna go at it harder. I had a, so one of my students uh, talk to me uh, last week telling me how much he hates America. He's 20. Wow. 20 years old, he hates America. And, uh, and I said, did you, ever, did you ever serve? Did you ever put on a uniform? Did you ever do this? Did you ever do that? Did you try to change something and bitch and complain? And he's looking at me and he knows I'm right. You know, uh, he said, well, no. You, you, you have to be able to go through that before you can realize what you have instead of complaining about what you have, not realizing how good you have it. His parents are paying for his education. He could do anything he wants to do. Yeah, he's, he's America. Privileged, he's privileged kids. That's great. Good God. I'm glad there's parents out there that could afford anything, but I don't know, like you just pointed out, if it's if they're doing, especially, I can't. we can't even say you separate men against women today. Because women have just the same challenges now because they're in the, the corporate world. Years ago, you know, you got married and had kids and stayed home. We never knew mothers going to work. And now they have to fed for themselves and they're in a competitive world. So I think the tougher and the challenge you, you give your children is going to groom them for going out in the real world. It's not, uh, you know... All ice cream and, and candy. It's like I, I I became a father when I was in my late forties for the first time, and it was like culture shock. When my sons started to play sports in school, everybody wins. Oh yeah, every trophy. Everybody gets a party. Everybody gets everything, and I was shocked. I thought I, I wasn't seeing this correctly. I said they lost the game. It's better that they lose and feel bad than to get rewarded for losing, don't you think? And his parents were looking at me like I was crazy, so I immediately shut my mouth, and that was the end of it. I never mentioned it again. Oh, I know. I, I saw that. I, saw, I went through that with my youngest babies. Everybody, Like you said, everybody gets a trophy. Yeah. My, you know, one of my sons was the worst player in the whole world. I mean, he, he should even have a uniform on. Why encourage somebody to do something that they're not right for? You can't be right for everything in the world. So why let them believe that, you know? I think I think it helps when you learn to fail, even when you're young and, and you cry yourself to sleep. But oh, you learn. Yeah. Anyway, that was my bicentennial minute. I just had, had to get that off my chest. <laughs> so, so off. what do we think? Should we make this a part two? Oh, I definitely think so because you know, I, I uh, why we already at a, a one now. Oh, we're past. We them. are. We can we can wrap up whenever we're ready. Well, what I'd like to do, I'd like to leave this thought for our listeners to think about. And it's something that one of my grandchildren brought to my attention. And maybe all of us can draw on it, all our listeners, because we we're going to get into the changes 
that this gentleman, whoever requested this, about. But I think we needed to create the foundation. But one of my grandsons said to me, he said, Poppy, do you realize that being raised the way we're being raised is all lies? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, think about it. He says, when I lost a tooth, my parents put it under the pillow, and the fair godmother's going to give me money. Santa Claus is coming. The Easter Bunny's coming. Everything you told us are lies. <laughs> and then when we're 13 or 14, all this is a myth. Now we should believe you when everything else you're going to tell me. <laughs> but I never thought of that. And I don't care if you're Italian, Irish, whatever your heritage is. They try to soften the blow. They try to make it easier. But they're not telling us the truth. Then all of a sudden, one day, sit down. I want to tell you the, the truth about life. Okay. And he goes in shell shock. <laughs> so, Megan, after listening to this, I bet you can't wait to become a parent. <laughs> uh, I think I'll do okay. There's, there isn't any, any, any book. There's nothing to, 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 to learn how to be a, a good parent. Uh, somebody asked me, what's the secret of being a good father? So, I mean, I, I raised two boys and they turned out well. Oh, no, you did. I, no, I met them, fortunately. Show up. Yeah. That's it. That's all I ever did. I wasn't the best father in the world. I don't know how to be. I didn't try to be good. I just tried to be myself. But show up. There you go. Well, that, that's a big you part do of it. That. That's, that's most of it. And the guy also looked at me like I had two heads. I said, when you have the kids, you'll figure it out. Just like I did and billions of others before us. Well, let's go to a commercial break and then do a mailbag, Megan. Yeah, let's do it. And we'll wrap this one up. And then we're going to get into really what went on <laughs> in the 60s on forward where we are now. We'll be right back. We're going to make some money and come back to the mailbag. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco Extra Virgin Olive Oil from Sicily, they created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneFineItalian.com. That's CorleoneFineItalian.com. All right, we're back. I love this part of the show. This is how we get material. So anybody out there listening, as you can tell, tonight's show was a request. You want us to talk about something or give your us give you our opinion about something, just request it. We have opinions about everything. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. First we have from Frankie. Frankie says, Gianni, what were some of your highlights from your summer? Any interesting projects in the works we should know about? Oh my God, yeah. Two two great things, and I'm very proud of them actually. I, I um I was always complimented early on about my clothing. And so I really, during the pandemic and everything else, I sat down with two gentlemen, David and Matt, which you'll meet later on in life with me. We have a label that if you go on, once you listen to the show, to La Cosa Mia by Gianni, go to the website 
And you're going to see what I did there, and that's a big part of it. And also, I expanded our whole Corleone Fine Family Italian line for the 50th anniversary of Godfather. So that's my highlights. I like doing more business. And what was your ups? Do you have any highlights for the summer? Well, me? I just I just recovered from COVID. Oh, my God. That's my highlight. I'm still here. That is a highlight because I, I was yes. told. I and was, this, by the way, was being fully vaccinated. I am a, I am a breakthrough case. In fact, I, uh, I just got the all clear like two days ago. Uh, everybody, I implore you, if you're on the fence about getting vaccinated, please do. Because without those shots, I wouldn't be here now. But I'm going to tell you something even scarier, though. And you, you met the guy at our book signing. He was our host at Del Fresco uh, restaurant. And he happens to be Tony Anastasia's son-in-law. He married Soloway? No, not Soloway's was our, our host who gave the party. The restaurant, Scotto's, Anthony oh. Scotto. He got COVID the second time and died in five days. He just passed. That good-looking guy at the front door? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. That's why you got to really be careful. Like Pat said, I don't know what these mandates are. I remember we had to get chicken pox. You had to get uh, anything. Polio, which I was a part of. Yeah, we, we, we had no choice in that. We had no choice. Now they're making, we have to have a choice. We have to have a say. Well, you're going to have a say, and we wind up in the morgue. But anyway, I've lost I, I've lost four people that I know. Uh, one of them was family in the last eighteen months because they wouldn't they wanted to see what the future was going to bring, and and they asked me, you know, uh, aren't you concerned about the future? I said, I'm old, man. I don't have a future, and you know, they, they, they you know they laugh. But uh, I can't understand people who who are risking their lives because of what they read on the internet or, or what some talking head says on, uh, on some TV show. Well, it's their privilege, though. It's your well, anyway, it, it, so those shots saved my life. Okay. And, uh, Megan, how I, do you I, feel about these shots? I try not to comment on anything that's, you know, has some sort of political note to it. I just... I, 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 I just keep it to myself. Once I okay. said, I, once I said that, I asked you the wrong question. That's, you're right. You're oh, right. it's okay. No, we know. Yeah, you know, just, you're right, because it's... Uh, it's, it's, it's basically a, a blueprint or it's something to come back to later on when you make a choice. That was something right, and just things like, yeah. it, you know, it's just become so divided and so political and so personal yeah. that I just try not to get into it at all. Okay. No matter what side I may or may not be on, you know? All right. Well said. <laughs> we Thank need, you. We need her here. <laughs> <laughs> the equalizer. Uh all right. All right. Next, Are you ready for please. the next one? Next one is from Scotty. Scotty says, this question is for both Gianni and Patrick. Concerning Frank Sinatra, can you comment on his marriage to Mia Farrow? Why did Sinatra change his clothes and act as if he were a flower child of the 60s? What kind of hold did Mia have on Frank? None of us know, and I know that well, because when he started dating her, and she was doing Rosemary's Baby, and he wanted to get out of that, and the ironic thing is, they live on my block. I won't tell you what block it is, but he took a house, a brownstone, six doors up, right on my block with her. 
And I can't tell you how many times you walk down the sidewalk and talk to me at night and says, this girl's driving me crazy. Plus, I had the experience of finding him in the hotel room where she lied to him when he was supposed to go to a bar mitzvah that Maya Lansky was waiting for him to be at. And obviously, uh, that marriage didn't last too long because uh, we didn't know what was going on because he was wearing tie-dyes and scarves. Man, and I, I, I saw one picture of him in uh, flowered bell-bottoms. He had some kind of a tie-dye uh, kerchief yeah, on. I know. I mean, that was, I, 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 you know, my first thought, he must be going to a costume party. Well, yeah, but I mean, that, oh man, he wasn't. That was his attire for the night. I know. We, I, I lived through it. I loved the guy, and then, which was funny because, then D. Martin dated a girl thirty years younger, and then we said, "What's going on?" What a contest. But anyway, no, Next. I mean, uh, who knows what that was about? Love is blind. Sometimes deaf, dumb, and blind. Yeah. <laughs> well, Scotty also says. Also, it's been noted that Ronan, Mia's son, is possibly Frank's child. Recently, Mia even admitted it was possible. It's hard not to think so when you look at photos of the two men side by side at the same age. The only thing I could attest to, unless Mia captured some of his sperm and froze it, it don't add up. I mean, I, I, I think Roman looks like him too. The light eyes, but you know, who knows? If she had a grandfather, she's not, you know, a dark Sicilian woman. <laughs> so, I mean, I think she's trying to capitalize on it a little. But she could have done that. We've, I've, I've been trapped, believe it or not, with uh, saying somebody was my kid. And when they did the DNA, it was 99% my kid. But it was inseminated. So, moving right along. <laughs> Weird. Well, I'm sorry to cut it off on that note, but that is all we have time for tonight. All right, but don't perfect. worry, we'll be moving right along to the next one yes. and get on to more of your questions. All right, please. Thank you all. We appreciate you as usual. The more reviews we get, the more people tune in. We all thank you for that. Keep your cards and letters coming, and we'll talk to you next week. God bless. Good night, everybody. Good night, Good night guys. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. Or when it seems your friends desert you. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night.